Welcome to Grad Life by the Horns, the bi-weekly podcast hosted by Becky Hills and Sophie Scully. We're here to make your 20s that little bit less scary. Touching on everything from career anxiety, struggling to pay your rent and the imposter syndrome that we all feel but no one talks about, this podcast will prove that ultimately we're all in the same boat. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Grad Life by the Horns. Just Becky here in the intro today as Sophie's doing the outro, so let's hope I don't forget to mention any of the important plugs that Sophie normally reminds me to do. This week, our guest is the incredible and inspiring Joe Seddon. Joe is the founder of Access Oxbridge, who are an award-winning digital social mobility organisation who provide anytime, anywhere virtual mentoring services to state school students from low-income backgrounds. Their web app mentors students through a structured mentoring course via Oxbridge style video tutorials and it's available to all students who attend UK state schools and come from low income backgrounds or areas with low university progression. Within a year and a half of their launch, Access Oxbridge has grown into one of the UK's most successful social mobility organisations. So we were so excited to interview Joe about how he turned his passion for social mobility and his own experience getting into Oxford as a student from a low income background into a business to help others. We had such an amazing conversation where we touched on the issues of social mobility, what these kind of elite institutions are doing to help people from low income backgrounds and Joe's personal experiences at uni from wanting to focus more on his social life and his studies while he was at uni and then taking his business idea and side hustle into it, making it into a reality as soon as he left uni. We also spoke to Joe about his new venture which is called Zero Gravity. Zero Gravity do whatever is digitally possible to reach and direct the UK's brightest young talent to succeed. Their ethos is the best university deserve the brightest minds. If you've got the talent, we'll get you noticed wherever you're from. Zero Gravity seems like an incredible organisation and it's going to be launching in the next couple of months as far as we're aware. So we'll make sure we keep you updated on socials on what's going on with Zero Gravity. Joe has also been a freelance education columnist at The Telegraph. He studied PPE at Oxford, gaining a first and was awarded a number of scholarships throughout his degree programme for academic performance. He completed a summer scholarship at a Chinese university. He's spoken at the Cambridge Union. Joe is an all round great guy doing incredible things for people from low income backgrounds. And we're so glad to see that he's getting the recognition he deserves. I can't wait for you to listen to this episode. So I shall stop babbling on and let's get into it. So hello and welcome back to episode 13 of Grad Life by the Horns. This week we are joined by Joe Seddon. How are you doing, Joe? I'm doing very well, Becky, thank you. So we start off every episode by asking you two questions. The first of which is, what's gone wrong for you recently? I feel like when you're a graduate, it's just like you're stumbling between one mistake and another. I think like this week, I've been getting around sort of four or five hours sleep every single night and that just sort of destroys your entire day so I'm like trying to recover from that but it's like so many catch-22s involved you know knowing you're just like so so tired it gets the evening but then you can't fall asleep because you're so tired so you just sort of get stuck in that rut so yeah that's what's gone wrong for me this week mm. yeah yeah that's would hard you, <laughs> would you say you're a morning or an evening person oh no I'm definitely not a morning person like at university <laughs> you'd like never see me out of bed before 11 o'clock like if my friends saw me at like half 10 they'd be like what the fuck Joe like what's happening to you like what's going on this morning um, okay? <laughs> yeah so and that's one of the weird things about transitioning from university to graduate life because I know especially for me I got used to a really strange sleep cycle at university where I was getting up at 11 you know, doing a bit of work throughout the day but then really doing stuff in the evening you know, going out falling asleep at 3am but now I've got to sort of be super super disciplined you know, get up at 7 in the morning try and get to bed by 11 which is just yeah really difficult 
what is going on for you at the moment? So at the moment, I'm in quite a weird transition phase. So, so when I left university, I created my own startup, Access Oxbridge, which I sort of did as a one-man band up until July of last year. And since July, I've been sort of doing it with two people, trying to revamp it into something bigger called Zero Gravity. And we're sort of now at the stage where I'm like finally hiring people and you know, spending significant amounts of money on marketing and things like that. So I'm in quite a weird phase where I've been sort of bootstrapping for so, so long. And now I've got the ability to sort of do all the things that I wish I could have done sort of 15 months ago, but now I've actually got to that point. It's so scary. I don't know quite what to do, but it's uh, no, it's quite a fun and interesting time. Oh, it sounds interesting. It is a big transition phase, isn't it? Because you said you've been working on it for over a year now. Yeah, so I, I started Access Oxbridge pretty much as soon as I finished university, so in September of 2018. <laughs> it was all about, I've always wanted to sort of be a, an entrepreneur and sort of social mobility was always an issue which wasn't just a passion for me because of my own life experience, but it was also something that I thought was really ill-served in the UK. So I, I did that, made all sorts of mistakes, and then sort of started to get a little bit more success in 2019, sort of got a little bit of funding, and that was probably the impetus for me to sort of take it and reshape it into what I sort of always wanted to do if I had the ability to do it. So I've sort of been working in stealth mode on Zero Gravity, which is a new iteration of that for sort of the past six or seven months now, and we're almost ready to launch, which is quite exciting. Yeah, so exciting. So kind of going on from that, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself, tell us about your background, where you went to uni, that sort of stuff? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a single parent household in Morley in West Yorkshire, sort of small suburban town. So I went to my local state school uh, and then somehow made it to Oxford. And there was all sorts of like luck involved, obviously loads of hard work as well. So I did BP at Oxford, philosophy, politics and economics, that which is a... been very intense. Yeah, well, actually not as intense as you imagine, though. PP has a bit of a bad reputation as Oxford, as a bit of a blaggers degree. You know? A lot of politicians <laughs> like David Cameron and Ed Miliband did it, so... Uh, yeah, it's got some negative connotations amongst some people. So you're going between sort of doing really high-level maths, the economic stuff one week to sort of philosophy, you know, Sartre, Kant the next. So you sort of got to be a bit of a bullshitter. <laughs> but that, that's a skill in and of itself, which I suppose I learned from the degree. But yeah, so I sort of did that, graduated from university, wanted to be an entrepreneur, sort of sat down with myself and thought, you know, what can I actually do here? What are my passions? Had a couple of ridiculous ideas, which never got off the ground. And then sort of stumbled upon Access Oxbridge, you know, thought it might just be a little bit of a side project at first, but sort of straight away had a bit of success with it and been reacting to that ever since. So with, with Access Oxbridge, was there like a key trigger that, that one day when you were like, this is something that I'm going to do? I think I just saw there was a, a huge, really ill-served market there. There'd been loads of press coverage about Oxford and Cambridge and how you know, they were dominated by students who'd come from a small subsection of schools sort of students, not just from low-income backgrounds, but, you know, from Wales, from all over the north, weren't getting in. I thought, well, actually, there's just so much talent in these regions now. I know so many people who I grew up with who, you know, Oxbridge was just never on the radar for them, but they were, like, so, so talented and would have absolutely loved to go there had they actually made it. So I thought, actually, this problem isn't quite as difficult to solve as it's made out. Like, yes, there's problems in educational attainment in state schools throughout the UK but there are actually quite a lot of students who are already at the level where actually if they applied they'd probably get in and sort of have a great time so what I tried to do was sort of create a digital network of those people provide them with the mentorship they need to sort of go through the application process and succeed and you know because most young people are online nowadays it's really easy to reach them and all it took was sort of setting up a Instagram account a Twitter some newspaper articles and suddenly I had a couple of hundred students who were applying wow. without any need for any sort of huge marketing spend. Wow, that's incredible. And I know that we definitely want to pick apart Access Oxbridge throughout the course of this episode, but I think what will be really interesting to hear is what 
was your application process like for Oxford? I went to like quite a good state school which had a little bit of a history of getting students and talks in Cambridge so I didn't go into the process completely blind but still then like I didn't know anyone who'd ever gone to study my subject at Oxford before. I didn't have anyone in my family who'd been to Oxford before so it's really difficult so you get little bits of advice from certain teachers who, who kind of know what's going on but kind of don't as well you know they might have had someone they knew who did it 20 years ago and now it's their advice is horrendously out of date yeah. so i had to sort of do a lot of independent research online and i was lucky because as a stage where sort of the uh, sort of market and information for oxen cambridge quite matured there was lots of websites like the student room the universities themselves where people were putting lots of information out there so i used that to sort of find out exactly how it worked but still going into something which I never experienced before because you can consume as much cold information as you want but until you actually sit there and go through it like you've got no idea what it's like you know what it feels like and I just remember getting to my interview and I was confident in my own ability but I was just so so nervous because this felt like a life-defining moment I'd be sat down for a couple of 30 minutes interviews with a world-leading academics and that would define what university I went to which at the time was massive for me I just remember like not really knowing how to comport myself no not how to sit down how do I sort of address this person how do I sort of have a one-to-one conversation with them so I, I just remember it being so so scary like in the first interview I was just doing really simple stuff like you know stuff I've been doing in A-level maths at the time but I just couldn't do it I couldn't function like when I was drawing graphs on the paper my hand was like quivering and like usually I wasn't that sort of person but because I was in a completely alien environment I was in one of the the Grand Towers I never sort of seen something like that before coming from Morley in West Yorkshire it was just so so weird Uh, with the process what would you say was kind of the easiest and the most difficult i think the easiest part of the process is making the decision to apply itself i think for me i'd realized through my sort of gcc results actually i am someone who could study at this sort of university so it wasn't a difficult decision for me to actually decide actually i'm going to go give this a go i've got nothing to lose but the most difficult part was actually you know just sort of keeping mentally strong through the process itself there's so many twists and turns you know the personal statement admissions test and the interview then you sort of have to wait for a couple of weeks over christmas to find out the result which is pretty horrible so so yeah just having the resilience to keep on going despite all the challenges you face that was the most difficult task and that's why i'm so passionate about mentorship because you know if you've got someone there who can sort of be along with you on that journey it makes it so so easy just having someone to talk to sometimes like it could be a high level discussion about how do I approach this interview or this admissions test or it could be something as simple as you know I've had a pretty shitty day I need to find some way to sort of recraft my routine so it works better for me like how do I do that do you have any advice you did a lot at university like a part of debating and all that kind of stuff did the skills you learned from those extracurricular activities enable you to build up access Oxford like was it helpful so I, I did a little bit of stuff at university, but I think for me, I made a conscious decision when I actually arrived at university that I wasn't going to throw myself into into that many things. I think Oxford is such a brutal environment in terms of you get so much work, like two, three thousand word essays you've got to complete every single week and then sit down and have a tutorial. And that's incredibly mentally sapping on someone. So I decided I'm just going to do things I enjoy, you know, going to things like the Oxford Union and seeing like world-leading politicians and business people speak but actually I'm going to spend a lot of my time as well just making time to sort of see my friends go on nights out be stupid be drunk make mistakes because for me that was what university is all about and I didn't want to get too serious too quickly because I I realized actually this is probably the last three years of my life where I can sort of afford to be a bit silly and not sort of take take myself too seriously. 
Mm, I think that's great actually because we've spoken to a few people that have been to Oxford before and there is this whole kind of thing around it says if you've got into Oxford you've got to be doing lots of other stuff like you look at influencers like Grace Beverly and people like that who have that got their own businesses and stuff like that was it important for you to wait until you graduated to start Access Oxbridge then? Yeah I think I did kind of have that mentality so I certainly wasn't like dreaming up a world-leading vegan fitness range or, or anything <laughs> like that but I really just did see it as an opportunity to sort of have a good time with my friends and I think if you spread yourself too far that can cause all sorts of problems down the track because I realized in various points in my life you know if something goes wrong that can be a catalyst for all the other things in your life to suddenly come into question. And if you don't quite know why they're there, then it can be incredibly confusing. So I just tried to concentrate on the things that I knew were sort of really important to me. And they, those sort of provided a really nice foundation, which kept me going, going forward. Like a lot of my friends who sort of supported me through the sort of past year, whilst I've been super stressed, trying to sort of run and grow a business, have been the sort of friendships which I made and cultivated throughout university. And had I not spent so much time sort of doing sort of silly things with my friends, you know, making mistakes together, having great times, um, that might not have been there. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about, more about your Oxford experience and kind of what a week looked like for you? Because I, I know a lot of people find it interesting, especially people who didn't go to Oxbridge, to hear what a week looks like. I think what sets Oxbridge apart from other universities is it's incredibly independent. So you sort of get set two essays per week if you're a humanities student, 3,000 words in length, then you get a little bit of a reading list from your tutor, and then there's like a day in the week where you sit down and you have your tutorial, which is like a one-to-one intellectual discussion where essentially you'll give your essay over to your tutor, then he or she will rip it to shreds in front of your <laughs> eyes. But other than that, like it's all independent study, so there's lectures that you can go to, but they're very much sort of supplementary, almost outside the curriculum of sorts. Um, so a lot of it is about just you know, doing lots of reading by yourself, doing online research, working out what's the best way to approach the question. And that's that can be really tough when you start because certainly in the school I came from, I never had experienced that way of learning before. It was completely alien to me. I'd never written a, an essay longer than maybe a thousand words before. So actually writing my first 3,000 word essays on Freshers Week was, was pretty horrible. Oh my God. Um, the last thing you're thinking about doing. Yeah, fueled by VKs, yeah. writing 3,000 words. As, exactly. I remember just sitting down in this room, my tutors, and they set the essay straight away. And Freshers Week, I just thought, my life is over. Why didn't I not just go to like a, a normal university, like a normal person? <laughs> like it's easy to complain about that environment at the time, but reflecting on it now, it gives you so many important skills which stay with you in later life. So obviously I joked about PPE being a bit of a bullshit degree, but you know, actually... Being able to float from one topic to a completely different topic week to week is actually a really important life skill, like being able to sort of be bold and throw yourself into things which actually I'm quite not sure how this works or about the subject, but I'm going to try and do it anyway. That's a really important skill to have, and I think that was almost forced upon me by going to Oxford. Mm, And you've alluded a couple of times to the kind of more difficult stuff and things that you've struggled with. Did you find that at Oxford your mental health was stable or did you find that there was any points where the kind of overwhelming amount of work you had to do really took a toll? I think it was relatively stable actually. The times where I had the biggest mental health dips actually were outside of university term time. I think one of the good things about having so much work at a university like Oxford is there's no time to be bored. You're either working to a deadline or you're doing something great with your friends, or you're doing an event. There's no time to sort of be stuck in your room wondering, you know, what's the next sort of thing. And actually, I've realised in my life the times which have been most difficult are the times where I've been bored, because, you know, when you're bored, 
you know, all the sort of anxieties you have can start to overwhelm you because you've got nothing else to concentrate on. So actually, no, I, I think people have very different experiences. You know, some people find the, the workload really tough, but in my own experience, I think actually the workload was something which, which benefited me mentally. What, would, what advice would you give to someone who's going through their final year at Oxford or Cambridge? My advice would sort of be don't work yourself into a ground. I think a lot of people have the perception that you have to sort of be in the library for 24-7 and that's what revision means or that's what work means. But actually, I sort of made a conscious decision that, that if you want to sort of get the best grades, you have to look after yourself at the same time. So I didn't change my routine of like getting up at 11 o'clock in the morning. Like my friends joke that, oh, you're so lazy. Like, why aren't you revising <laughs> like everyone else? But actually, that was really important to me and like getting a good night's sleep and be able to sort of work in the evenings rather than the mornings was what I knew worked in my situation. Mm-hmm. So I'd say sort of create a schedule which works to your strengths. Don't feel the need to sort of be seen to be doing something or be seen to be working. And though, especially at those sort of universities, people always want to put on a look, you know, be the first one into the library or be the person sort of working. Don't fall into that trap because it, no, it's, it's really not going to help you succeed. I think that's really good advice because I think one of my key takeaways from university was figuring out what works for me and you, especially when you graduate and you go into a nine to five job, you're just kind of stuck in that system. But at least at university, you have the autonomy outside of seminars and lectures, you know, to go to the library at 2am or 7am or 3pm. It's whatever works for you really, isn't it? Yeah, like I did some really silly things, like looking back on it now, like there was one night where it was my friend's birthday and she was having a party and we'd organised like a great night out with pre-drinks and because I hadn't managed my time well enough, I was sort of stuck there doing my essay in the library at eight, eight o'clock to try and meet sort of a deadline of getting to my friend's party at 10. So I, I brought some Carlsbergs into the library and dragged them whilst <laughs> I was working, which I eventually got on a bit of shit from, for, for, from the librarian, but actually... No, that, that felt right at the time because that was allowing me to sort of balance work and sort of balance doing things with my friends and they're doing it in quite a light-hearted way. Had I just like super stressed out and was trying to scribble by myself in the library to try and get it done, it probably wouldn't have been a very nice experience. Mm, and I think that's great and that's something that's transferable into kind of graduate life as well because you feel like, when, especially if you get like a nine-to-five job when you've just finished, you think, I've got to be in the office all the time, I've got to get in an hour early, I've got to leave an hour later, I've got to skip my lunch. And actually it's been like you can still do well you can still succeed you can still have everything you want in life but you don't have to push yourself too much all the time and I think that's important for people to recognize too yeah so I think graduate life's a bit different because when you're at university you sort of, you almost feel a little bit limitless like your parents aren't there telling you what to do anymore but then you sort of transition back into a office type environment and suddenly either you're working for a big corporate where you've got managers who you're sort of responsible to or if you're sort of doing things by yourself in a startup you become super responsible to yourself or your investors or your stakeholders so then you, you almost become a little bit like a child again so you, I think the difficult thing about graduate life is you almost have to rediscover some of those things you learnt at university and sort of reinterpret them in a new world which is quite a difficult thing to do because no you, there's no handbook of how to do that and actually when you start university there's all sorts of people there giving you advice there's lots mm-hmm. of people in your immediate vicinity who are going through the same thing but now if you're arriving at a company there's only you and a couple of the graduates like that's not a common experience. Yeah, and you talk a lot about mentors as well, especially in Access Oxbridge. And at university, you kind of have mentors, whether they form as your lecturers or as your peers. They can tell you, right, you must stick to the schedule, you must do this. But when you graduate, you know, it's, it's your responsibility, mm. isn't it? Yeah, so when you're at university, you almost have like mentors served up to you on a plate. So, for example, my tutors at university, they were some of the greatest 
mentors in terms of sort of directing my, my ambitions and goals. But you know, when you go into graduate life, you've got to almost discover for yourself who the best mentors are. And actually, sometimes the best mentors like come about in the strangest of places. You know? It might be someone who's only a couple of years older than you. It might be someone who's really older than you. Like I know that the, the best mentor I've got in my life, the person who I sort of co-founded Zero Gravity with, is just some guy I sort of met in a pub in Hampstead. Nice. And he was sort of doing a research project. He wanted to meet me and we sort of sat down and had a pint. And we almost became friends and had a friendly relationship before it transitioned into anything else so it's not like I actively went out trying to find mentors or vice versa like sometimes you find them in the strangest of places oh wow that's really interesting yeah I think that's great because we were talking to a guy called Akil Shah a couple of weeks ago and he mentors people and it's very much from what he kind of described being a he sees people on LinkedIn or people see him on LinkedIn and they kind of create a very working relationship from there but it's interesting to hear that they don't have to be from a very traditional mentoring background you can just meet people and get on and you can help each other in different ways yeah so I have sometimes people contact me on LinkedIn now people have sort of tried to start businesses outside university we have like calls where I sort of try and mentor them through that but a lot of the time there's you've got to sort of do a little bit half an hour beforehand where you just try and get them to think properly about the relationship which is being built so they sometimes look up to me as you know someone who's sort of been there and done that I'm actually like no like I'm I've only just come out of the same position you're in now sort of thing and actually I've made a fuck ton of mistakes in my own environment like you can learn from some of those but a lot of them were very idiosyncratic as well and actually having those sort of conversations I think is useful like rather than trying to pretend that you're some incredible world leading expert who's sort of been there done it before actually being far more authentic showing your vulnerability I think is what mentorship is all about because it's got to be a reciprocal relationship and if you, if you as a mentor aren't learning things from your mentee you're doing it wrong at that point you're almost like a coach not a mentor and that's a very different type of relationship yeah that's really interesting and I think what would be great is to move a bit more into the details behind Access Oxbridge and especially with mentors and how that structure works but what would be really interesting to hear is how it actually developed because we did a bit of research and you did you learn how to code your website all yourself didn't you yeah, so I was back from the age of sort of 12, 13, I was obsessed with sort of Silicon Valley culture. I remember I watched The Social Network, the movie about the foundation of Facebook with Jesse Eisenberg playing Mark Zuckerberg, and I was just enthralled. Mm-hmm. So I was always really interested in that culture. So I, I tried to teach myself to code when I was 13 and 14. I was absolutely dreadful at it. I, I was quite unlucky because that was just before the stage when there was all sorts of great websites out there like Code Academy and Code School, which sort of gave it to you on a plate. So I sort of had to the old-fashioned way of you no know, reading like long uh, textbook stuff on websites wordpress <laughs> for dummies exactly wordpress <laughs> for dummies those sort of things but I, I sort of i learned over time and I, I got when i graduated from university i had around 200 pounds left from my maintenance grant i thought you know i could spend this on a couple of nights out in leeds with my friends but actually i'm going to try and do something productive of it so i thought okay i'll use that for access oxbridge so most of it was just doing things myself, you know, creating the website myself, paying maybe seven pounds for a bit of web hosting, creating my own marketing campaign, you know, creating a video, buying some animation. So it wasn't super high cost. A lot of it was bootstrapped. And that was really good at the time because you know, you've got to have that mentality when you're starting something up. You've got to keep everything super simple in order to succeed. But it's also quite a difficulty as well because as I transition into this new phase, I'm still like incredibly like frugal Yorkshireman who sort of refuses to... <laughs> sort of spend any money on anything and actually that can be quite a perverse thing as well because sometimes you actually have to sort of spend money on things to get things done and actually you know make it one economy can actually be one economy too many and stop you actually getting to that next level. I think that's brilliant because 
the way that you use the rest of your maintenance lane for something productive I know I certainly didn't do that. Oh, God, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, mine was definitely my 21st birthday. That's where mine went. (laughs) Yeah. How have you found transitioning it from Access Oxbridge into what is going to be zero gravity? So I reflected on the mistakes I made of Access Oxbridge. So I think what's the really interesting thing about Access Oxbridge is I was able to reach so many young, talented people from all around the UK. The thing I'm most proud of is that we weren't just helping people who lived in East London all the big cities, we were actually reaching people who sort of lived in suburbia or rural isolation. So this year we had students who got into Oxford and Cambridge from sort of like Glasgow to Luton, Scarborough to Blackpool, like right in the heartlands of the UK. So I was reflecting on that and was thinking, I can do so much more than just create a conveyor belt of students into Oxford and Cambridge. No, that's really good and it's a big issue, but actually there's all sorts of other issues in this area as well. No, there's the other great universities as well where people need help to get in. There's also the transition into graduate life as well. So there's no, it's no good just getting students into Oxford and Cambridge and then sort of celebrating that you've done a good job. Actually, the, the job of mentorship doesn't end there. Like there's all sorts of people who get to university and they don't have mentors to get them to the next stage. Remember when I got to university, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. At one time I sort of thought about maybe becoming a lawyer, but I didn't know any lawyers. Like having a lawyer mentor who you can access through this digital platform would make life so, so much easier for sort of people like me two years ago. So I wanted to sort of take the concept of digital mentorship, you know, through the laptop, through the phone and transition it into a whole load of different environments, but still at the same time cultivating a community of really talented students who have sort of succeeded against the odds. So people who come from low income backgrounds, who come from areas which traditionally don't get people into top universities or top jobs, create a community of those people because actually getting those people to meet as well and sort of have a common identity, I think is really, really powerful. So one organisation which I sort of looked at was Mensa, the sort of high IQ organisation. I was reflecting on that and thought, you know, Mensa sort of started off as a really interesting, cool idea, but has actually turned into just sort of this weird IQ, pessimistic <laughs> organisation where people meet up and play board games. But actually, there's so much more that can be done when you have sort of really intelligent people who can sort of connect and collaborate. I thought, actually, I'm going to try and take that and do that in a slightly different way. And I think that's great because especially at the moment when it almost feels like community is breaking down as a result of social media and stuff like that, it's amazing to use the internet and that kind of online platform to get people together to create good ideas because from what I've been researching a lot recently is that people just feel like very detached from everything. And is that something that you've noticed talking to people when setting it up is that people want a sense of community? Yeah, I think there's been a lot of polarisation in the UK over the past couple of years. So you sort of reference social media, but then there's also political events over the past Mm -hmm. couple of years as well. And what I saw with Access Oxbridge is actually I was reaching people in the heartlands of the UK. But when I was speaking to them, they didn't want to just sort of get into a top university and then sort of go to London and leave their home community behind. Actually, these were people who were sort of really passionate about where they came from, sort of felt a strong sense of community identity there. So I didn't want to sort of leave that behind either. So... One of the things I've sort of set up alongside Zero Gravity, the new organisation, is something called Zero Gravity Fund, where students who get into universities and have good ideas about things they can do in their their home communities, which have a social impact, and sort of get a grant to sort of start up and do that. Because I know what really drove me with Access Oxbridge was the idea of helping sort of people in West Yorkshire who were sort of like me, and I know that's a that's a sentiment that lots of people share. You know, the place where you grow up has a, a lot of meaning to you, and I wanted to, to allow people to sort of go back and sort of do things which they were really meaningful. What would you say is your personal, your biggest success story with Access Oxbridge? So in terms of individual, God, there's, there's, so, there's so, so many. So I think quite a nice one this year is 
that we had a, a student who got in to study Spanish at Cambridge who never actually left the UK before ever, had never been to Spain before. But the reason why he became so interested in Spanish is that he had a pen pal who'd been communicating with for the past sort of five or ten years. And just having that pen pal sort of cultivated this huge interest in sort of Spanish language and Spanish culture. And I was just blown away by the fact that he was so you know, passionate about Spain, despite the fact he's never been able to go before. So I, I was so, so happy when he managed to get in. I thought that was such a, a, a testament to sort of both him but also the fact that there's thousands of thousands of people just like him all over the UK. You know, I, I sometimes refer to them as hidden talent, but the students don't see themselves quite as that at that stage. But there's so many people like that, sort of, sort of just waiting to sort of be connected. So I sort of made it my, my life goal to bring them all into the same place and really allow them to do whatever makes them happy. Wow, because mm. you, you should study the things you gravitate to and the things you are passionate about. So that's brilliant, isn't it? Mm. If you're giving that to people or helping them on the path to get that, that's really good. Exactly. And I think that's what's so good about mentorship. Because mentorship is, you no, know, it's personal, there's no sort of finances involved, like it's different from tuition and coaching. You do have a license to make mistakes. You know, if, if you're just on some kind of tuition course and you've got some teacher who's sort of teaching you maths every week, if you suddenly realise that you don't like maths anymore, that creates a huge problem with the relationship. But when it's mentorship, actually you can afford to sort of make mistakes and make maybe the things we were doing a couple of weeks ago aren't actually relevant to my life anymore or have helped me realise that I don't like this, I don't like that. And that's what I think is so great, the sort of flexibility of it. Yes. How does the mentor system work within Access Oxbridge? So it's all completely digital because I think that's the only way you reach people around all four corners of the UK. So what we have is a digital mentoring platform. It works like... The best way to describe it is it's sort of like a an amalgamation of like Skype and Twitter um, all, all in one place. Um, so a student will apply to join Access Oxbridge and certain pieces of their data they sort of put in their application process are then compared against public databases and then we do some weird algorithmic magic and that allows us to identify those candidates who've sort of really succeeded against the odds. So people who've sort of performed super, super well compared to the average person at their school, people who come from backgrounds where Traditionally, there aren't thousands of people going to sort of top universities or top graduate jobs. So we then we just sort of pin down and help those people. They go into a digital platform where they sort of get presented with a curated list of mentors. So again, there's some weird algorithmic mag- magic which sort of puts certain mentors in front of them who sort of might be particularly relevant. So if you have a student who has an ambition to study chemistry at University of Oxford, they'll see lots of mentors currently studying at University of Oxford who study chemistry. And then the mentee selects the mentor. And I think that's really, really important because actually that makes the relationship sort of feel very personal straight away. I know there's some similar schemes which sort of just push two people together, and I think actually that's completely the wrong way to look at it, because that makes the relationship so artificial. It's kind of based on stats rather than connect personal connection, isn't it? Exactly, and I think that's so, so important. And then once that happens, they sort of, they do weekly one-to-one video tutorials, all integrated into our platform, so you can do it behind your laptop screen or mobile phone. And we sort of give a little bit of a structure there about what mentors and mentees should be doing and saying, but it, it's not prescriptive or dogmatic in any way, because like I said before, like the, the beauty of mentorship is it is organic. So we have a bit of a guiding hand in terms of like setting out expectations and stuff like that. But a lot of it is actually just saying, you, know, you guys now have the responsibility to cultivate this relationship in the sort of best way possible. Let's see what happens. And actually, it's been super, super successful. Amazing. I was just curious, have you had any schools 
reach out to you or start a conversation with you because obviously there's like Oxbridge schemes and six forms but you are a completely different external source so have you had that conversation with any schools? Yeah so I made a decision when I started the organisation that I wasn't going to do anything through schools because a lot of the students I was trying to reach were in schools which historically hadn't had big connections with Oxford and Cambridge so a lot of the teachers weren't particularly turned on to those opportunities so actually going through the schools would have been really difficult because there's so much administration mm-hmm. bureaucracy people take time to answer emails and I didn't have the resource to be going on school visits and stuff like that so I did everything online sort of going directly to the students through social media but now that we've had success you know schools tend to get in contact with us so we've had schools who sort of get in contact and say you know we've had our first ever year where we've got swimming talks in Cambridge like this is fantastic what's the magic formula I and mean, I sort of have to reply and be like actually there is no magic formula no sometimes it is just about connecting the right people in the right place no there's no cheat sheet or weird code i can share with you actually you just sort of need to sort of put a bit of thought into what people exist within your own network as a school that you can bring in to sort of really inspire your students and give them the resources they need to succeed but i think that's a much better way of doing it because i think especially when it comes to in cambridge a lot of schools are sort of ambivalent at best antagonistic at worst because they see those institutions as really far away you know really alien really pompous and posh and although they're sort of very different nowadays to how they were back in the 70s or 80s those perceptions are really difficult to change but the way you do change those perceptions is actually by getting students into those universities you know once a, a school in blackpool has a success of a student actually sees actually our students are alumni are the people going to those universities actually their perceptions of the school of those universities now completely change um so sometimes it only takes one student from a school to sort of act as a a role model or a mentor for the sort of the next generation so i've seen this year on my program that actually student schools where the first person in the history of the school got in last year have actually created another success story of of students exactly exactly the thing is that you use like you can't be what you can't see so it's like when people say about seeing people from diverse backgrounds on tv it's like oh i can actually do that now so you've got to got to have that physical role model to be able to get into it yeah so i think over the past couple of years there's been some really good outreach in the bme community when it comes to encouraging more people to aspire to study at top universities so there's schemes like target oxbridge there's the stormsy scholarship at cambridge which was really really successful increasing the number of black applicants at that university uh, but when it comes to sort of low income in general that spans all ethnicities and the difficulty with classes very much nowadays it's invisible it's very difficult to pin down if you sort of see a photo of someone who is white for example is that person someone who comes from an affluent background or a low income background and so one of the big marketing challenges i've had to face up to is how do we communicate to people in the right way how do we re- create campaigns that really resonate with people and I think the way that we we've done that is actually sort of go back to the communities where people are from you know people don't want to see videos of the the grand spies Oxford Cambridge actually they want to see videos of people living in sort of normal communities that they can relate to so I think that's a that's a really important thing that we've done which is allows to actually connect with students and actually allow them to sort of resonate with the message that we're trying to put forward mm, and I think that's a great point because like the secondary school I went to was one of the worst schools in Essex and then the sixth form I went to was one of the best sixth forms in Hertfordshire and the difference between the education you received but then there was like a huge program to go into Oxbridge at the sixth form and all that sort of stuff but then when I got to uni I went to kind of a uni where it was a lot of more state school people and everyone kind of resented the private school people because it was like well they've just got all this privilege and what like we can't do that 
but actually seeing a mentorship like this that people can then relate to and say, well, actually I can do this and it doesn't feel like such a far away goal. It's so important because actually the thing is people don't talk about social mobility in the same way they talk about diversity. Yeah, you're so, so right. Like polarization ruins everything. The thing which always frustrated me is all the media coverage of Oxford and Cambridge is all about sort of pitting private school against state school. And that's a really unhealthy dynamic to create because no one can help the backgrounds they're born into. People are often proud where they come from. Um, so I really wanted to sort of find a way to sort of push past those barriers. So a lot of the mentors on our uh, on our program have come from private schools. We've got people at Eton, for example, who mentor students on our program. And sometimes that can be really, really successful as well. And you know, the, the best mentors aren't necessarily always the obvious ones, no. Although we do sort of see a lot of the times people want to be mentored by someone they can relate to who comes from a similar background, no, that isn't always the case. But at the same time, I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And I think the way we can sort of address that issue going forward is by just being really careful about the language we use. So nowadays when I'm sort of talking to students, I make sure I don't sort of talk about state school versus private school. I don't sort of use the language of disadvantage or things like that, because lots of our students, although they come from low income backgrounds, they don't see themselves as charity cases. Actually, they see themselves as just another student living in their home community. So you have to be super, super sensitive to that in order to get through to people. Yeah, because like you said earlier, you, you've you created a community where you celebrate people's stories rather than kind of categorising people. It's more just like, this is you, now we're going to help you get into Oxford or Cambridge. Exactly. When I was growing up in West Yorkshire, I was really, really ambitious. Didn't really always know about the resources I could use to get to where I wanted to be, but I never saw myself as a as a charity case. I saw myself as sort of a, a young thruster who wanted to be sort of more than I was at that moment. And that, that's the sort of attitude we want to reflect to our students now, encouraging them to be bold, but also to sort of draw on the power that they have from their own background. So lots of our organisations, a lot of the time, sort of fetishise or even poverty porn some of these types of students. But actually, the thing I always like to put forward is, you know, your background is your source of strength, like what you've been through. There's so much golden there which you can draw upon and there's so much resilience which has been created by going through a certain experience a lot of times what students say to us as well is their passion for a particular subject was inspired by something in their home community so there was a, a girl i was speaking to the other day who's got an offer to study history at oxford and actually her sort of passion for history was cultivated by working at the weekends in a sort of local history museum in edgebaston and i just hear those things time and time and again so like coming from a place like Edgebaston where there aren't thousands of people going to top universities for that person isn't a disadvantage actually it's a huge source of strength yeah mm. and it gives you something a little bit different to talk about on your application because if the if you have come from an incredibly privileged background you're going to kind of have the same sort of things that everyone else has got or you're going to have it because say your dad works at a big bank so you've got a work experience that way but if you've actually gone out of your way to kind of form those connections of people reach out to people try different things it just gives you something a bit different that those top universities could really benefit from yeah exactly so sometimes when schools reach out they like to talk about the personal statements with us and they say you know what's your weird cheat sheet for the personal statement but no it doesn't work in that way a lot of times it's just about allowing students to realize that the things they've been doing in their day-to-day lives are really cool things which can be talked about because it's a source of inspiration so even if you haven't done a work experience or internship at Goldman Sachs and instead you play five-a-side football with your mates, actually sometimes a five-a-side football can be a really good thing to talk about if it led to something else or it allowed you to develop a exposure to something. You know, if, for example, if, you're a, if you want to study 
uh, physics at university and you're playing five-a-side football and you're interested about the sort of physics of the football when it's being manipulated around the pitch, actually that can be something quite interesting to talk about. Like you don't need to have done some weird uh, internship at NASA to be able to look good on an application. <laughs> you just have to sort of demonstrate you know, passion for your subjects and that can be done in all sorts of ways. And I think it's that it's those idiosyncrasies that really do stand make you stand out from the other people, and that actually you just need to think that everyone wants to be the same all the time. Everyone wants to have those Goldman Sachs internships, and actually, it's you don't have to have done the big, big name things in order to be successful. And it's redefining what success actually means. Exactly, but at the same time, there's nothing wrong with doing those internships as well. So one of the things I'm going forward is trying to create a digital network where it's far easier for a student to get connected with internships because I know the. The problem at the moment is there's all these different graduate employers with their own recruitment systems. You've got to do the same psychometric tests 200 million times, send in the same answers to slightly differently phrased questions. And it's just so, so fatiguing. So I wanted to try and find a way to sort of circumvent that system for our students and actually bring the great internships and work experiences directly to them. Because the thing is nowadays is lots of corporate employers want to hire students who come from underrepresented backgrounds because those students bring a diversity of experience, of understanding. Um, so a lot of the times corporates reach out to me and say, look Joe, we really want to get involved with what you're doing, not because we see these students as sort of charity cases or this as a CSR endeavour, but it's because our own internal research shows that these people are the best people for our business and we want more of them. Though Currently we get one in every single graduate intake, but we want to get five instead because that would be really great for us as a business. And I'm really happy to sort of help out with that because if that's what our students want to do, then I'm really happy to encourage it. You know, some students do want to go work at Goldman Sachs eventually. Some students want to go and start a social enterprise. You know, just let people sort of decide what's right for them and make mistakes along the way. I loved your use of the word resilience earlier because resilience is really coming to the surface in careers now because it's a really important thing to have. And within the community you've created, these applicants have developed resilience within you know, their backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of resilience is about you know, just drawing on the power you already have inside you and sort of reinterpreting your own experience. And sometimes what's interesting about that is it takes almost a catastrophe or trauma to sort of make that happen. Like I know in my own life, the times where I've sort of really realised what's important is where something's gone really, really wrong because then suddenly the sort of rug gets pulled out from underneath you and you've got to sort of work out what's there and what isn't there. And you actually realise that some of the things you've been doing in the past weren't quite right. Actually, other things that you thought were a bit weird were actually sources of strength. Um, and that's a difficult thing because obviously you don't want to fetishise sadness or disaster either. But sometimes those are really key, actually, I think, to the human experience. And what's been the thing since kind of becoming a graduate and working on your startups and that sort of thing? What's the biggest thing that's given you that resilience? I think a lot of it has come down to my, my upbringing. So I sort of raised in a single parent background. So I'd always, because of that, sort of try to be as sort of single-minded and I think try and reduce vulnerability within my own life because of having gone through that experience. I wanted to feel like I was I was safe from anything that happened around me. But I think, actually think having things gone wrong allowed me to sort of reinterpret that experience and actually see, no, I do draw a lot of strength from that, but actually times in my life where I've been happiest is when I was able to vest my own identity in other people or rely on other people. And actually, you've got to be able to do that. You can't be a self-standing individual who's completely invulnerable from everything in the world because at some point something's going to go wrong and you're going to realise you're not the big man you, you thought you were. So I think that having gone through that was a, a source of strength, but it's something that I've had to sort of reinterpret gradually over time. With Zero Gravity, 
in an ideal world, where would you like it to be in two years' time? I think in two years' time, I sort of want to be zero gravity to be at a point where any student who sort of gets the age of 16 and gets incredible GCSE results and is like one of the top 10 people at their school knows where to turn and knows that zero gravity is the organization which is going to help them really kick on at that point and get to where they want to be so i want to sort of have that mass exposure because i feel like the audacity to be bold is such a important thing in students lives and what i really want to celebrate with zero gravity is just making people realize that there's so much out there in the world no waiting to be achieved and sort of what you see in front of you right now is not the is not the limit. So I want students to sort of get to that stage and be really, really excited about what their future holds and, and not just see sort of academia as some stepping stone. I want people to realise that, yes, you know, doing well in school, getting into a good university is really, really important, but actually it's just one small part of your life. Like it's really seminal, but actually there's all sorts of other things you've been doing outside that as well. So I want to make sure we integrate all of those things into what we're doing as well, rather than just being coming sort of a really academically focused organisation. So, for example, I want there to be sort of students who get great GCSEs and get great mentors on our programme who then sort of realise, actually, I don't want to go to university, I want to do an apprenticeship instead because, for me, that's a success for us. Like, we shouldn't be just creating a conveyor belt to top universities. We should actually be allowing people to go in a sort of a road of self-discovery and allowing people to realise, actually, I don't want to go to university, I want to go straight into a job because they had those people actually gone to university and dropped out in their first year we would have really sort of ill-served them as a result. And I think that's so important to kind of understand that diversity of experience and diversity of intention with what you want to do because a lot of the obviously we talk to graduates on here and a lot of people we've spoken to have been to top universities but actually being like you don't necessarily have to go down that career path and down that kind of academic path is really important to recognise too. Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing with top universities as well is they become such a part of your identity, like whether you like it or not. So whether I like it or not, when I tell people I go to Oxford, people a lot of time fetishise that. But I I don't feel like that defines who I am as a character. For me, the most important part of who I am is where I grew up in West Yorkshire. And I still feel a really strong sense of belonging to my home community. And yes, Oxford was a a great thing which shaped me in many ways, but that that is not the totality of of who I am. I've got so much more to me than just a a university degree or graduation certificate. I think lots of people feel like that as well. And it's it's part of the system we live in though. You go to university, you've got to put a personal statement out there which sort of defines who you are. You go into a gradual, you've got to give a CV which sort of lists who you are as a number of different sort of achievements but like no one is just the sum of their own achievements like people are really complicated individuals and actually sometimes the most important things in in your life can't be defined in one sentence or a, or a ward or a certificate yeah i think going way back into the conversation we were talking about how you split up your uni life and doing extracurricular stuff versus academics so now you're you obviously have these conversations with internships and these big businesses Do you see a change in the application process where they're looking less at where you go to university and your grades and more at what you do, or is it a good mix? I think it's always going to be a mix. I think but the the tide is sort of starting to change. I think lots of businesses in general are realising that behaviours and personality are really, really important and that university can be a really good signal about your sort of ability to work hard or your intellectual ability but no that signal only goes so far so there's plenty of people from Oxbridge who are really really intelligent but aren't the sort of people who would thrive in a 
particular business because they don't have a certain number of different skills and behaviors. So I think employers are putting a really big focus on behaviors, but it's really difficult to sort of put a CV out there which allows those behaviors to come to the forefront. So I think lots of employers are starting to look at different ways they can analyze people's behaviors. And that's why I think mentorship links in really nicely with that as well, because if you have an online platform where people have been mentored and you can sort of curate information from that and almost create a dynamic CV, that allows a lot more of your personality to come to the forefront. So you can sort of lose the boring stuff about what university you went to or what school you went to and actually allow your sort of mentorship journey to come to the forefront because that is actually, I think, what's most powerful in people's lives, the relationships they have with other people and sort of how they've managed to cultivate those. I think that's so important in the graduate community Mm. as well, isn't it? Definitely, because I think it's so easy to just think, I've got to do X, Y and Z and then I'll be successful. And actually it's saying, you can pursue your passions, you can do what you want to do and that makes you a unique candidate for a role. It doesn't mean that you're not as good because you haven't done what everyone else has done. It's actually separating that and saying not everyone has to be a monolith to be successful. I think this is actually something that people at Oxbridge really, really struggle with because a lot of those people have always been the top performing people in their school when they've got all the validation of having got into one of the best universities of the world and then it comes to their graduate applications and suddenly they're getting rejected left right and center by all these firms they thought they could just walk into because they had a great university on their cv and then there's a sudden realization that actually there's more to me and more to my life than just which university i went to i think that's that's can be really really tough for people so one of the things i want to sort of sort of allow people to educate themselves on over time is you know I am more than just my CV and you can't afford to just be your CV either. Like you have to be someone outside that because if you invest yourself just in your own headlines, as soon as those headlines fall away or are rejected in some way, your entire life is going to come into question and that's never a good position to be in. Yeah, I think that's a really good piece of advice. Yeah, because it is so easy to be like defined almost by what you've got on your LinkedIn and actually (laughs) it's being like, no, I am a sum of a lot of different things. It doesn't necessarily have to be because I've done this internship and I've had that job and I've got that degree. But at the same time that like, you can't completely like eschew that either. Like I still have a LinkedIn profile. I still put wanky posts on there about things oh, yeah, I've we, done. Or we love it. <laughs> um, and actually I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So you can sort of flat out reject those networks, but at the same time, those are the things people use every day. And actually having that nihilist mentality might not necessarily be the best thing either if that sort of ostracizes you from other people. Yeah, it's all about that balance. It's all about saying actually, I will go to the pub one night this week, but I'm not going to not go to work tomorrow as a result of it. Like, it's really making sure that your life is the sum of lots of different things, not just academia and not just career. Because you can't, I don't think you can be entirely happy just by looking at kind of tunnel vision and being like, I'm only going to focus on this. You need that social life. You need that kind of community element. Mm. I think as well with LinkedIn, you're starting, I definitely see more posts now where it's not just about what degree you got or what certificate you got people are putting on LinkedIn the fact that they ran a 5k or they did all these other things with their life so it's all coming into one it's about who you are what you dedicate your time to and what you pursue yeah I mean the tricky thing is because LinkedIn is such a a marketplace almost of ideas as soon as people started doing those authentic posts and naturally afterwards people started creating these almost artificial authentic posts you know the the situation on the tube which oh, you gosh. think actually did that happen or not and the sort of very well written posts oh, and, and that, that's the sort of danger of linkedin as well where you know, as soon as an idea catches on or there is a degree of authenticity it's slowly pulled away
Mm, it's like those <laughs> awful like story. awful morning routine posts where it's like I got up at 5am and it's like who did it it was um, the guy who was in TED did that awful LinkedIn post where he goes I got up at 3am and I go in my cryo chamber and then I do this and I'm just like it's not realistic <laughs> who do these people think they are yeah. going on to kind of summing up the episode a little bit have you got any practical advice to people who have just finished uni and are kind of struggling with that what we've just discussed, that whole, like, my university defined me and I don't know what to do now. Have you got any advice, people, who are kind of narrating that graduate wasteland? My sort of one piece of advice would be embrace imperfection. We're all sort of work in progress. And I think one of the things I really struggled to deal with in my own life is when I was starting my own organisation, there were so many things I wanted to do, but I couldn't put it into action because I didn't have the right resources or money. And that sort of had quite a big psychological tug on me because I thought I was creating something which, you know, didn't reflect exactly who I was I thought actually are people going to laugh at this and think it's a little bit shitty because no my branding's a bit rubbish or stuff like that but actually you've got to realize that all of life is about different stepping stones in different locations and sometimes you have to do things wrong and make mistakes to get where you want to go and be able to sort of change things over time so I've got a brand now with zero gravity that I'm really happy with because I've been able to invest no money in doing that and get a proper brand agency who can sort of make my ideas come to life but I just couldn't afford that 12 months ago but actually the stuff I did 12 months ago which I look back on now and think oh god why did I do that <laughs> has been really important in getting me to that point so you know, in whatever area of life you can't do things perfectly and actually you should always sort of strive for perfection but don't let it define who you are and actually be willing to to make mistakes and learn along the way. So you might have actually answered this question already but Joe, how are you going to continue to grad life by the horns? To grad life by the horns this year, I'm going to try and create a... I, I hate using the phrase work-life balance because I think setting up the binary distinction between work and life just doesn't make any sense to me because for so many people, you know, their life, their life and identity is somewhat vested in their work. But at the same time, I think it's, it's right that you realise that in order to sort of be healthy in general as a person. You have to invest time in doing things which make you happy and healthy. So the thing I'm gonna try and take control of over the next year is just every single morning going swimming because I think actually doing that in the morning makes you feel so, so much better during the day. And if that means that you get into work half an hour later, like so be it. Because actually having a, a really nice you know, life actually makes your work so much better as well. Brilliant, amazing. Thank you so, Thank you so much. much. Hi guys, Sophie here. Just wanted to warn you first and foremost that I'm a little bit blocked up and I've got a cold. So if I sound strange at all, please just blame it on that. Joe, it was absolutely wonderful to meet you and thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights. Obviously, with this podcast, we talk to graduates about everything grad life. So naturally, our guests are not only graduates, but have done something wonderful in the educational sector or contributed to the process of graduation for others. It is quite easy to say that Joe stands out as one of these guests, as he not only shared his own experiences with grad life, but also demonstrated incredible entrepreneurial skills and his social awareness and compassion for others around him. I personally learned a lot about social mobility in this episode and how this manifests in the application process for Oxford and Cambridge. I do actually remember the kind of diversity that my sixth form craved when it came to the Oxford scheme. And I know many that would have benefited from having a free, anytime, anywhere mentoring scheme like Access Oxbridge to gain support from. 
We do often associate Oxbridge with a very particular calibre of students and it can be seen as quite elitist but the truth is is that this is rightfully changing and it needs to keep improving its accessibility and diversity. With thanks to people like Joe, hopefully this will keep getting better and we're so excited to see where it goes. If you or someone you know would benefit from using Access Oxbridge, find them at www.accessoxbridge.co.uk. To put it into perspective, Access Oxbridge helped over 100 successful students from disadvantaged backgrounds in one year. So it really is a testament to the passion that is put into the scheme. But Joe doesn't stop there, as we have found out in this episode. And early this year in 2020, Joe, as CEO and the founder, is launching his digital social enterprise called Zero Gravity, which connects the UK's most exciting talent with mentors, universities and employers. So definitely look out for that. It was just brilliant talking to Joe about all this stuff and we commend him for all the hard work he has put into his projects. Although he doesn't rely on social media to market, he has written for The Telegraph, he has spoken on the BBC, he's featured on The Tab, you name it. Honestly, just type his name into Google and look on his LinkedIn and you'll find a lot of stuff about him and Access Oxbridge. Please follow Grad Life by the Horns on Instagram at Grad Life by the Horns and Twitter at Grad Life BTH. If you have enjoyed this episode, or others for that matter, please subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if that is the platform you use. Any support we gain from you guys is always appreciated. Thanks again, Joe, and good luck with all of your endeavours. Guys, have a great two weeks and we'll get back to you soon. Bye!